HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode of The Grape Nation is brought to you by Jewel Sous Vide by Chef Steps. Jewel takes the guesswork out of cooking. Learn more at chefsteps.com slash J-O-U-L-E. I'm HRN's Executive Director, Katie Mosman-Wadler, with a preview of the next episode of Meat and Three, our weekly food news roundup. The topic? Restaurants and rules. Some rules are based on religion. This makes for an unusual scene in a Manhattan restaurant, a shy 20-year-old dictating the kitchen standards to a humble veteran chef. While other rules promote health and safety. But who are these feared rule keepers with the power to shut a restaurant down? They're not really like food, food lovers. Some restaurant rules fall outside the domain of the kitchen. All civil rights issues have basically, uh, at one point or another, revolved around the bathroom. For more, tune in to this week's Meet and 3 on Heritage Radio Network, available wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to The Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guests are Paolo Russell Pinto and Evan Goldstein. We'll talk about the wines of Portugal, specifically the regions of Porto, Douro, and Alentejo. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. Paolo Russell Pinto oversees promotions and communication for the Institute of Wines of Douro and Porto in Portugal. Master sommelier Evan Goldstein is one of the nation's most prolific food and wine writers and a wine veteran with an expertise in Portuguese wines. We'll talk to Paolo first. This is Sam Ben Ruby from the Grape Nation. We are at the Porto and Douro wine training class at the City Winery in New York City. And we're talking to Paolo Russell Pinto. Paolo, um, I think it would be better if you tell me your titles and the institute, 
Um, and what you do, you do communications, tastings, and all that. So two things. Give me a quick background on who you are and how you got to where you are, your journey, and you know what you're presently doing. And then I want you to help me get into wines of the Douro. Okay. Thank you for having me <laughs> in your uh, show. Um, actually, my degree is microbiology. Okay. So, uh, although now I am a taster at the Port and Douro Wines Institute, and I also am a wine communicator at the marketing department. So, uh, what we believe in the Port and Douro Wines Institute is that it's through education and putting more people to know about Port and Douro wines, we are able um, to make them uh, bet more informed uh, in order to make their decisions into the trade or as a consumer. So, so let me that's ask what you, we do. my perception being in the States is that port wines and wines from the Douro are delicious, maybe underappreciated. Um, has the marketing up until now been what you would like it to be, or you're really now getting into a push? That's why you're here. For, yeah, for uh, for someone who is in the marketing, uh, working in the marketing, uh, all the money is never too much. Right. <laughs> That's the issue. We always right. have ideas and things to do. Uh, our aim, uh, as we are the ruling body for Port and Door Wines, is to educate and inform. And the marketing regarding branding is much more um, to be done by the companies itself, by the, the houses. Um, so we have very two distinct, distinguished perspectives on what to do uh, in the market. Uh, we believe that the American market is still has still a lot of work to do regarding positioning and showing uh, not only the trade but the final consumer um, uh, the good wines that we have, not only for door wines but also for ports. Port is a magnificent wine with a lot of history, but it needs to be explained in order to people to make better decisions. Right. So then the U.S. is a market. Oh, yeah, it's it a very important, important market for us. It's on the to top 10. But you, you said that it's you're an organizing body. Yeah. It's left to the individual wineries. Um, do you see more of, I guess, an aggressive stance or participation? Yes. more investment on, on the U.S. market. You Good. see that the port companies that also have still door wines are investing more in the market are putting more people here working not only to uh, get their portfolios better for for agents and for trade but also to make events where people go and uh, to sponsor uh, some also some other events in order to uh, create create more awareness on doru and port wines so that is being done yes well the the great news is the wines are great. So the more <laughs> that you promote and the more that people taste them, they'll I understand how interesting. That's what it lacks. It's information and, yeah. and promotion because the raw materials and the, the quality is there. Well, what we need is to inform people and to let them know that port and door wines exist and they, that they are delicious. Now, I just sat in a two-hour class with you where you split it up between wines of the Douro, mostly the still wines and then port wines. And you said it earlier, and you said it in the class a lot, you are a taster for the Institute. Um, it's interesting in two ways, you know, that you get to taste everything, but tell people why you're tasting. 
there's a body there yeah. that tries to control vintage year. Or, you know, give me a little background on what yeah. the tasting. Uh, port, port wine is highly regulated, not only regarding the port production, but also the amount of wines that the company have and all that stuff. And we are very keen in protecting the name ports. Uh, and uh, on that point of view, what we do is that every company and every person that wants to have a wine labeled as port produced in the northeast of Portugal, um, we, uh, they, they have to submit the wine for, for chemical and lab analysis and also to the tasting chamber in order to create uh, a coherence uh, and to ensure that the wine is within the boundaries of the appellation. So because of that, we not only have labs, as we have a tasting chamber in which uh, there is a college of, of people, which include myself, we are seven, that we taste wines every day in order to ensure that the wines fit the standards that the companies um, send the wines for approval, if it's a, an LBV or a vintage or a 10-year-old right. tony. So primarily that the wines are up to snuff to be called porter or exactly. wines. But then you said people classify wines as 30-year-olds yeah. or vintage years. You taste that and you have to approve that, exactly. true? Ex exactly that. So just tell me quickly a little about that. There's a reference when it goes to vintage years or yeah. whatever. I mean, how scientific <laughs> is it? The, um, <laughs> it's, it's scientific to the point that is sensorial analysis and statistics. Okay. So at the beginning, uh, you have to be trained because sensorial analysis, when you taste anything, not only wine, but also food or flowers or perfumes, when you do sensorial anal analysis, what you have to bear in mind is that besides you having not an excellent nose and an excellent palate, but the ones that work <laughs> if right. they are functioning, right. uh, 80 or 90% of sensorial analysis is memory. It's the ability that you have to recognize something, if it's uh, something or some flavor or some, uh, some other. So to that point, what we do at the ta in the tasting chamber is that we train for several months, six to eight months, before our results start to count, to be official, in order to create this memory. So we taste nearly thousands of wines, 1,500 wow. or 2,000 2, wines, uh, before our results are valid. So uh, lots of references went through our noses and palates before in order to, to understand what is a 10-year-old or what is a reserve or what you is a vintage a port. And, and then when your results start to count, you have reference points. Um, so not only what the company sends you, but also the ability that you have to recognize right. what is a certain style. Do you ever get pushback, disagreement from wineries, or it's not really? We, we do have, and there is an appeals chamber okay. inside the process for <laughs> if the company doesn't or the, the, the house doesn't agree with us, they can appeal, it's true. Right. Uh, but most of the time we agreed with, uh, with uh, or the company agrees with us, it's not we agreed with right. With the company, and we are also allowed to disagree with the rest of the chamber. So, uh, of course, that we are humans; we are not machines. So, uh, of course, that we have to calibrate ourselves. Right. Uh, but uh, nevertheless, uh, all the results don't have to be a seven-zero. They can be a six-one or a five-two. Right. 
but I, if I we if we that. have a four three, the wine will be repeated on the next days, and uh, the the result is suspended until you have a higher uh, approach or a higher uh, amount of of tastes. Right. So. It's, it's interesting at that point. We're talking about statistics and sensorial analysis. Right. You, you need to do both. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about uh, the region and the wines a little. And yeah. you can help me and walk me through <laughs> this. So let's just start with some quick history. The Douro is the oldest regulated wine region appellation. In the world. Um, in the world. Yeah. People don't know that. But in my research, the wines really didn't come into prominence. I don't know if it's just the U.S. until the 70s, the 80s, yeah. the 90s. So <coughs> it's it's more the U.S. Uh, that 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 point. Uh, okay. We have to be aware that for th throughout 250 years, uh, England would absorb more. The ports, the, yeah, the a port. lot of the ports. England, Houses Brazil, English, Russia. Right? Yeah, yeah. Most of the part, the not not anymore. But the the big names uh, in the industry are English. Used to be English companies, and still have this English heritage. Uh, but the success of ports come more in the U.S. Come more in the 60s, 70s, and, and uh, right. after that, after Second World War, I would say. But in Europe, yeah, in Europe in England, used to be England, South America, yeah, yeah used to and be locally. Yeah, you, right. and locally used to they already have some hundreds of years uh, uh, of um, history. Right. It's it's the oldest wine region in the world. It's interesting because it's only 20 years. Uh, older than the American Revolution, which is uh, which is interesting. Uh, it gives the American consumer the perspective on how old it is, right. <laughs> because it's almost as equivalent as the birth of the nation, which right. is which is curious. Uh, Not that long ago, <laughs> exactly. long enough ago. Exactly, right. long enough. Right. It has an history by itself. Right. Nobody has uh, any grandfathers <laughs> to talk to it, about those yeah, days. But uh, nevertheless, it's it's interesting and it's uh, it's quite curious. It's the oldest demarcated region in the world as we perceive the Appalachian as today. Demarcated means that a geographical area, limitation. geographic yeah. area has been determined exactly. within that area. Uh, and uh, There's a triangle. There's demarcation, yeah. which is assigning the area. Yeah. There's uh, regulation, so a set the of rules, rules. rules that you have to, to fulfill. And then there is a, a, a body, an entity that controls those rules that ensure that all the producers follow the rules. Right. And if that someone doesn't follow the rules, that can't bear the name ports on the label. Uh, exactly what would happen in Champagne or, or Bordeaux. Right. Champagne, right. if you would do Champagne with Sauvignon Blanc, probably there will be someone saying, okay, you can't do that, or you can't label the word Champagne. Uh, you said earlier they're not making Burgundy in Bordeaux. They <laughs> exactly. Grow it, but exactly. That's part of you know what the regulations of Bordeaux are. Um, so the Douro is famous for port and still wine. Yeah. And port is on the ocean. Yeah. <laughs> and the Douro is in. So just give me a geographic setup quickly because yeah. the mountains that separate them have a big influence. Exactly. So tell me about, let's talk about terrain, terroir. Okay. okay. Um, it's interesting because Porto is on, on, on the shore, on the, on the Atlantic shore. And um, Douro starts 100 kilometers east in the Douro River. So the Porto stays in the mouth of the river Douro. 
uh, but the region itself, and it's an Atlantic climate, very mild summers and very mild winters, some fogs in the beginning of the day. So it's very good and has excellent conditions to store the wine because the wine will be at uh, very good temperature range, range conditions throughout the years. But the, the Douro itself, because there is a range of mountains between Porto and the Douro, where the moisture of this Atlantic climate condensates and, and makes it rain, keeps the Douro protected from this moisture, the Douro, the winemaking region. So it, it cuts... Yes, cuts the entry of this moisture. moisture. Yeah. So the climate is much more continental, much more dry summers and very cold winters. And this creates spectacular conditions to make to wine making, uh, adding up that is highly mountainous. It cre creates a lot of microclimates and plots in which you have different profiles of grapes, which will make different profiles of wines. And then at the end of the harvest, the winemaker has the ability and the opportunity and the chance to mm, to blend all of these characteristics into into a wine. Uh, but let's stay with terrain and terroir. Yeah. So it's the river is called it's the Douro. It's the Douro yeah, River. It's more and from the banks of the river yeah. it runs up to different Yeah, the, the, it's very very hilly and, and the then the type you, of planting is Yeah, you you have the the tributaries of the Douro and this hilly and the, the, the it's so hilly that you cannot plant the rows facing the river. You had you have to make them follow uh, the, um, the the river uh, creating terraces or steps like a giant leather or a leather for giants as some poets already uh, um, published it. So uh, when you look at any picture, you see yeah. these terraced, different facing directions. Exactly, exactly. And you know, it's startling. And and you see from a picture taken from from the the the, the up. Uh, like a drone or something, looks like um, uh, a digital a digital print, right? Because you see the lines, the lines. facing around uh, around the mountains, the lines, and yeah. this also creates this spectacular scene, not only uh, as landscape, but also an opportunity of microclimates and 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 management of uh, of uh, grapes and and uh, vineyards that allow you to make great wines. So. In looking at those pictures, it must be much harder to grow, harvest, yeah. equipment. No. I mean, there's more of a challenge. Earlier, they used to build stone walls exactly. from the ground to fortify. Yeah. Now there's a form of terrace. Yeah, now science applied uh, allows us to skip the, the stone walls, but they were very important throughout 200 years in order to sustain the soil uh, because all mo almost all of the Douro is chist, so you have to break this stone and with the leftovers to create soil to plant and to, to allow the vineyards to create roots and then you would use the leftovers of this picking in order to create the walls to sustain this land. So it was something very uh, circular <laughs> on, on this kind of, of, of approach. Now science allowed us to skip the, um, the stone walls and to create the terraces without the stone walls with some steepness right. in order to not to erode each one of the terraces. Right. Uh, does that allow for more plantings? That it, actually, it allows for less plantings, yes, uh, which is also a challenge. Right. Uh, but they are more stable uh, geographically right. wise. Um, so everything is on schist. 
Yeah. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. There are wine regions, even in Napa, Bordeaux, where you can go five miles away. One's volcanic, one's yeah. gravelly, one's stone. It's all predominantly schist, it's right? It's predominantly schist. I would say I, schist would account 90% of all the, 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 the but soil. But schist is stone. Schist, so initially yeah. to plant, yeah, you, y- have, y- to you have to break the stone in order to create the soil. Yeah, and that's Sounds what like is... like a lot of work. Uh, it was a lot of work throughout 400 years, and that's what uh, enables the region now to be a World Heritage Site because right. you have thousands of kilometers of stone walls, and you have a wine region that's n- literally transformed the landscape and transformed the image, create from, from mountains, you created uh, uh, an arable soil that enables you to plant vineyards and also some olive trees. Right. <laughs> uh, but most of it would be schist with some um, what we call flowers of granite, in which sometimes you plant white grape varieties. Right. But they don't account for more than 10%. What schist? Slate also. You can, slate, yeah. schist, the stone, you know, the soil, which is made. What characteristics does the that part into... Yeah, schist is a sedimental soil. So as it was stone and you create soil, you have very, you have very low quantities of nutrients. So to a, if you compare it with clay or with other soils that we are used to see in the biggest or in the most uh, known wine regions in the world, is exactly the same principle. Very low nutrients, the, the, the vineyard has to fight for itself, the vineyard has to look into the sheds of water uh, below in order to resist they itself. Struggle. Yeah, to struggle. Is that a more intense grape, a exactly, more flavorful exactly, grape? Exactly, exactly, as, as you have a, in any other known wine region in the world. So from that point of view, it's good. So how, how are the soils fed nutrients? And let me give you a second part of that question. How much sustainability, organics, biodynamics yeah. are practiced there? Is that important, not important, hard it's, to do? It's becoming important. I think uh, in all wine, in any wine region, you can uh, have biodynamics and natural wines. And I think as any other region in the world, the ports and the Douro, they are acknowledging and they are making experiments. I think it's too close to call. Right. as any other region in the world. It's not, not a question of being in the Douro, but as a wine lover that I am of, of wines throughout the world, I think it's still too close to call to see the repeatability and the coherence of uh, a wine production into a, a natural approach right. to it or a biodynamic. Biodynamic, we know we have more information now, but on a natural side. But, of course, we have already producers doing natural wines, right. yes. You know, if you go to the Loire... Yeah. There are way more yeah, you know, natural course. producers. But they started 10 years ago. They did, and <laughs> even 15. longer than yeah. that. So, you know, exactly. we'll kind of keep an eye on that yeah. and see where that goes. Exactly. Um, all right, so we talked about the geography. We talked about um, the soils. Let's talk a little about what people are drinking, which are the grapes. Yeah. Um, so there's red grapes, white grapes, there are indigenous grapes, and there yeah. are grapes, a lot of grapes. But let's talk about the ones that are used mostly. Yeah. Let's start with red. The, the prominent grapes are... Red. We, uh, what is great about Douro and Portugal uh, in, in general is that we have a lot of native grape varieties. We have one of the biggest widespread 
grape variety lists only compared with Italy. Uh, we have more than 250, 300 grape varieties in total of Portugal and 100 of them are in the Douro. So for this 80 80% would be red, and you can actually produce Appalachian wines with any of these grapes, but usually you blend them. So 80% of the growth is red? Yes, and okay. 20 white. 20 white, and let's get into no, the 80%. What percentage of 80, the 80? I was saying that 80% or 80% of the allowed grapes to produce uh, right. Appalachian wines from 100 to 110 are red. So 80, per, 80 red, 20 white, more or less. Uh, I could list all of them, but I, it would be annoying for <laughs> for yeah. everyone. Prominent. Uh, yeah. The prominence, you have the, the most known Portuguese grape, which is Toriga Nacional. The base of Toriga Nacional is the Douro and the Dao region. Uh, but you have Toriga Nacional. Then you have Toriga Franca, which also accounts for a lot of plantings inside the region. You have Sozão, which is a red flesh, so it will impart lots of color and tannins into into the wine. You have uh, Tinta Roriz, which is the Tempranillo in Spain, right. uh, that will account for the fruits. You have Tinto Cão for the structure. So uh, I think... All different blendings. All different blendings that contribute to something that is important to the wine longevity and to the wine flavor, for sure. All right, so those are the reds. Of the ones you mentioned is... Toriga Nacional, the yeah. one that's the most planted? Uh, Toriga Nacional is not the, the most planted, but it's the most known. Most known, <laughs> Because okay. it has a, a, a fruit profile and a nose profile that is no similarity with anything in the world. So it's quite easy uh, for you to show the Douro with a Toriga Nacional right. in the blend. Now, what about white grapes? White grapes, it's, it's exactly the same, but to a lesser extent. Right. So you have uh, 20 grapes, 25 different uh, white grape varieties, and you also need to blend them because Douro is so intricate that uh, we believe that only one grape would not m complete a wine. So you need one for structure, another for fruit, another for longevity, another for color, and that's how you create a blend in order to have a very well-balanced wine. And the whites are exactly the same approach. You so the approach name the me a few of the yeah. prominent so white grapes. The, the, the Malvasia, Malvasia. Fien, Fina, because Malvasia would translate to Malmsey exactly the same in Madeira, but it's not the same grape. Okay. Uh, so Malvasia, Fina, Codega, um, Gouveio, which is the same as Verdejo in Spain, um, and uh, those are the those are the three main and Rabigato also very uh, stony uh, mineral approach. Now, y you know, you mentioned all these grapes and they all have characteristics and you know they're blended at different levels. Are there winemakers or newer winemakers that kind of screw around and are focusing on yeah. one, like where nobody would do a Toriga Franca? You know, 100%, there are guys, you know... You, you, you can find m single varietal wines in, in the Douro. What I would say, it's not the, the main thing. Right. Uh, but, you, but you can find. Not only young, young winemakers go more into the natural side or making... We, we, I think we are passed through this idea of the very extractive and tannic and full-bodied wine. So exactly as any other region in the world, we are looking for for more balanced, uh, fresh right. wines. So the new winemakers are pretty much into that. And sometimes they have to pick other grape varieties that were not as fashionable as 
the ones that were 10 years ago. Right. So that also makes the, the fun out of the, of the winemaking in the Douro. Right. So we're talking to Paolo Russell Pinto. Paolo is at the uh, Porto and Douro Wine Institute. That's the English name. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and we're talking about port wines and Douro wines. And the port wines are the fortified wines. Yeah. So a couple quick questions on that. What percentage of the wines coming out of Porto Douro are the fortified port wines, and what are the still wines? Yeah. Um, port would represent nowadays for 70% of production, and um, 25 to 30 would be Douro wines. Okay. Yeah. Um, when do you think, I alluded to this earlier, when do you think wines from the area really caught on um, outside of Portugal? Uh, you know, was it the U.S. first? Was yeah. it Europe? I mean, we know that <coughs> England was a big, you know, port yeah, consumer. Yeah, ports, yes. But the, the, the still wines yeah. and... It was very interesting because uh, IVDP started to manage uh, Douro production and Douro sales uh, on 2003. So actually, we had a lot of statistics regarding sales for port, but we didn't have anything for the Douro. So it, w it was quite interesting to see like a, a jury on a, on a contest. Who would be the first markets to appear on, uh, on sales on, on Douro wines? And actually, um, Canada and Switzerland were the top uh, sales in exports. But we have to be aware that in 2003, exports were not that big. Uh, now they've grown five or six times more in 2018. So actually, Canada c continues to be one of the main export markets. The United States are now in second, Switzerland, right. Brazil, Angola also. Uh, what is also interesting is to see that the profile of exports of Douro have nothing to do with the profile of exports of ports, which is also very interesting because the, the top 10 of port is very different from the top 10 markets of, of Douro wines. They're really two entirely different exactly, kind of wines. Exactly. Sometimes when we started, we thought, okay, we will have a profile on port, and port could be you the You can't go the by main, region. Yeah, you yeah. have to go by the type of exactly. wine. I mean, port has this older history, I would think, in all of that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the U.S. actually are the, were the biggest uh, market for exports for all Portuguese wines in 2017, and Dodo was not an exception. I could tell you, you know, I do the show, and we have a lot of winemakers, a lot of sommeliers, journalists. Portuguese wines are very much in favor I think because you're always looking for something different. <laughs> yeah. But different doesn't mean good. I think they think they're good. Yeah. Um, the grapes are delicious. They're well made. So, uh, you know, I think there's a very, very uh, bright future here. I hope um, so. <laughs> you know, for. That's why uh, I'm here for also. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and you talking with you stated and uh, your position and all of that. All right. We're going to wrap up in a few minutes, but the wines are predominantly red. Portugal, I guess, because it's surrounded by the ocean. Yeah. There's a lot of seafood. Let's just talk about some practical stuff. The still wines of the Douro, which are predominantly red, and then there's some mm -hmm. whites. Let's talk about the classic food pairings. I mean, are these wines, are the red wines good with seafood? Is it a traditional meat? You know, tell me your... 
feelings on yeah, that? Yeah, well, um, uh, I, I wouldn't say that it would be easy to match red wines with seafood no. <laughs> at any, any part in the world. No. We, we, when we think about the Douro Reds, um, of course, we go pretty much into the Portuguese food is not based a lot on the grill. We don't have a lot of cuts, so we, we like use South more. South America. Exactly, yeah. no. Or even North America, but True. we when we th think about uh, uh, f meat, we go pretty much into roasts and uh, and uh, pots. Right. Um, so sometimes, with the, because of the influence of the discoveries in in Portugal, we also use a lot of spices such as nutmeg or uh, cumin. Uh, it's very common to see that in Portuguese food. Um, so I would say that. Douro reds are very fruit in the beginning, then they develop to this spiciness and then herbaceous and rosemary approach. So here in, in, in the US, they would pair very well with any cuts of grilled meat, of course. Um, and then we have the rise of the white Douro wines. Also, they are being produced on the top of the hills and they are also becoming fashionable, very fashionable in Portugal. And I hope that it will also become fashionable in They're the U.S. crisp, acidic wines. Yes. And, uh, so that's a good But also food with wine. a lot of fruit. And that will be much more right. uh, matching, very matching with seafood for right. sure. But if you're in a restaurant, ask your psalm to tell you you know, what to pair with. Um, let's just talk about port quickly. Yeah. Um, port is a wine made from the grapes we discussed in the regions mm -hmm. in the uh, Douro. Um, and then take it from there. They're fortified. Yeah. Give me the quick process, yeah. the fortification. Yeah, I used to say in, uh, as a joke that it's quite easy to make port. <laughs> okay. <laughs> because uh, you... Port is sweet and a little bit higher in alcohol. Sweet because it retains the natural sugar of the grapes. Uh, by having wine spirit, brandy. So in two days, we have to make the wine. Two, three days, we have to make port. Uh, and that's why it's So that's why you're saying it's easy, because yeah. you make it in two, three days. Exactly. Okay, see, I'm <laughs> see done. You. Yeah, exactly. But and it's not that we can So you, you, you... It has its the features, The process is two, the, three days. Yeah, the process and is... Then and then you have to, to add the four to five you, points. As soon as you have the right amount of the, the amount of sugar that you need, you take the, the the wine out of the tank and you add the wine spirit and you let it settle for three or four months throughout winter, and then on the next spring you start aging it and this will create the classification that you know today as the rubies and the tonnies and the vintage and the 10-year-olds the and the 20-year-olds, all of the, the types of port that you, the range of port that you can find in, in, in stores and in wines. Uh, so in, to that, in the wines. there's a couple of quick things to buzz through. Yeah. The wines are aged in smaller or larger barrels, exactly. which have an effect on the aging and on the process on the, and on the on type, the type of, the of wine. wine, wine. And all of yes, that. if the if the wines are stored in small barrels, the, they will age quicker and lose their their dark color, and we will gain this gold color that we call it tonnies. And if we keep them on big vats or stainless steel, they will not lose the color. They will keep the fruity character, and we call it the rubies because of the stone of the precious stone. Right, and then you had mentioned the one-third rule. Yeah. 
which, you know, people think of ports as, you know, aged wines or even a tawny at yeah. a supermarket says 10 years. But what's the one third? And, and let's one, talk about the one the third aging. rule is, is, is one, thir- one law that um, uh, obliges you to keep two thirds of your stock every year. So you can only sell one third. This allows you to age wines properly in order to always have older wines, and when I say older wines, sometimes I say wines with more than 100 years old, in order to make the best blends uh, at, at, the, at the top end of your portfolio. If you wouldn't have this rule, you wouldn't have old wines uh, on stock. Right. So It's a forced yeah, it, rule. It's a forced rule, but enables you to have great wines at the end of the day. Right. Okay, so that's, you have to hold back wines. Now that you've held back the wines, you have a bunch of older wines. Exactly. And those are classified by vintage and age. Explain that. I guess there's three things. There's vintage, there's age, and then also port is not released every year. You'll explain that. Yeah, when when it's uh, vintage, uh, you you have the blends for the tonnies, so you can use uh, several... Uh, vintages to create an, an average uh, aged wine, I would say. On the vintages, uh, you, um, uh, you you only pick the top-end grapes or the top-end wines of each year. Uh, so not every year you may have a quality status uh, vintage port. Or a, Who determines yeah. that? Is that uh, the institute? Yes. The, the, the companies or the houses will apply for right. the vintage classification, and we will say yes or no. And there's usually a consensus? Yes. The growers know this yeah. was when a great the, year, this yeah. was not When the year was year. very good, okay. you have an overall approach to a very good year in the region, and this year will become a classic. So that's when and how ports released. Now, yeah. you see 30-year-old, you see... Yeah, ac- Actually, you see two things. You'll see a 1981, you'll, ac- you'll see an actual date, yeah. or you may see... 40-year-old. 40-year-old. <laughs> Which is almost What's up from with 1981. That? So, yeah. It could be the same year yeah. and date, but it's not the same market. If, if you have a, a single-year Tony, so a wine aging wood from only one year, which is would be this 1981 that you said. Uh, it's only a wine from that year. But you see, if, if you see a 40-year-old, you immediately realize that there is no vintage year on the label. Right. So you can be sure that this wine is a blend of several years that will give a wine that looks like 40 years old. So a wine and with 40-year-old. It's an average. Uh, it's a it's a it's a wine that looks like okay. more than an average. It's not a mathematical average. It's a wine that looks like forty years. So okay. it's a wine with forty forty five years, and then a, a, a older wine and a younger wine. And this blend will make a wine that looks like forty years old. So let's talk about port vintages, mm-hmm. which we discussed are not released every year. Yeah. It's determined by the institute, the winemakers. Let's talk about what are What's the best current vintage, whether coming out or just came yeah. out? And let's go we, backwards a few vintages I, I for people if s- yeah. they go I out. would say that the last declared year was 011. Okay. Uh, good we year? Are a very good year. So e- buy? Yeah, exactly. Okay. <laughs> uh, 011. Uh, now, the 07 and uh, 03 and 2000, it's also very good years. Those were declared. Yeah, okay. Those, those are declared. And 03, they, they 07, are, 11. They are safe buys, yes. Okay. They are safe buys. All of these wines would probably come into a period, are now in a period where they are a little bit dumb. Right. So you have to hold wait. Hold on to yeah, them. You hold on 10 years or 15 years more. 
And I'm, I can also announce that uh, 2016 will also be a declared so year. So that's the first so teen vintage the first and the most recent. Yeah, the most recent after 011, yeah. And then if, if our listeners really want to go back a little, and I don't mean way back, and spend a little money... Yeah. Talk to me about 70s and 80s. Yeah, Give well, me. actually now, 1980, 1985, I would say they are ready to drink vintages okay. because they passed this dumb phase, 77 or 75 also. Sometimes you can find outside these classic years uh, also very good vintages from other years. So usually vintages are safe buys because uh, there are wines that uh, uh, develop very well inside the bottle. So you would never have a very bad vintage inside right. <laughs> the bottle. So it's always safe buys, and the, actually the prices are quite attractive. Yeah, I mean, it's a terrific wine and value and quality for the price. Yeah, I agree with you. I'm just curious, before we wrap up, people in Portugal, in the Douro, in Port, whether it's north or south, what are people drinking when they're not drinking wines? <laughs> It's a good question. We is are it beer. I mean, are they francophiles? Do they love Italian? What? That's more of a personal question. What do you yeah, see? Yeah, no, we are a wine drinking country. That's for sure. And uh, I, it's difficult to say because when we're not drinking wine. We are drinking wine. Uh, of course, beer accounts for right. uh, 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 and some sangria. There are good alternatives. But sangria is wine-based. <laughs> right. But, uh, of course, that we, we, we also drink beer. But uh, I have to emphasize that we are a, a wine-drinking nation. So we always pick, uh, especially on with food, we always pick wine. Right. Yeah. So wine is important. Yeah. All right. We're going to wrap up. Um, Paolo, thank you for sitting down with thank me. Thank you for having me. Uh, thank you for having me in your master class. <laughs> it was a pleasure. Um, Keep an eye out for wines from the Douro and from Porto. There are still wines and obviously the fortified port wines that you know about. Um, so thank you to Paolo Russell Pinto. Paolo is from the uh, Institute of Wine for Porto and Douro and uh, spent a little time with us to walk us through and hopefully you got a little out of this. Thank you, Paolo. The holidays are coming up and you can host the most delicious dinner and wine parties this season with Jewel. When you cook with Jewel, there's zero guesswork. So steak, chicken, seafood, eggs, and your holiday roast come out exactly the way you like them. Now you have a little extra time to taste test your wine and food pairing course by course. And cooking with Jewel is hands-free, so you can focus on your guests, perfect your recipes, and making sure you have enough wine to serve with your great food, while Jewel does all the work. From perfect steak to tender flavor-packed holiday hams, roasts, and fish, Jewel makes the best food you've ever tasted. Just be sure to save room for dessert and a little more wine. Jewel, perfect food every time. To get yours, visit chefsteps.com slash J-O-U-L-E. That's chefsteps.com slash J-O-U-L-E. And use code H-R-N to get 15 off for a limited time. That's chefstep.com slash jewel, code HRN for $15 off. Welcome to the Grape Nation, Evan. Thank you. It's a treat to be here. Thanks. Evan, 
before we get into everything, I want people to know who you are. You've had a you have a pretty extraordinary and interesting background in wine. Mm-hmm. Um, what I want you to do is give me a quick history <laughs> Absolutely. Quick, of your journey in life and wine. And at some point, because why we're here, when did you get into Portuguese wine? That's an excellent question. I'll, I'll, I'll be, uh, give you the cliff notes of the Reader's Digest. Okay. Um, I uh, was a frustrated rock and roll drummer, decided to follow okay. something that was creative um, and wonderful and paid money. So I ended up going into food, uh, in part because my mother is a very renowned chef and opened up California's first, or I should say Northern California's first cooking school in 1965. So rather than playing organized sports, I would go and do prep in the afternoons to do that. So strong food background, uh, wine household um, and always had that as a part of my life. Um, went into the restaurant business uh, thinking I was going to be a chef and ended up segueing into wine when I realized I would be forever known as my mother's kid if I didn't have something different. That led to uh, having the opportunity to take the MS exam in 1987, which I passed in 1987, became the seventh American. And Wait, um, wait, stop right yeah. there because I've had a lot of sommeliers on. You are an MS, a master sommelier. Mm-hmm. You were the seventh MS in the U.S.? That is correct. Okay, I think we're up to... 150-something yeah, now at this point. Yeah, in the world. Yeah, so yeah, back in the days of short-armed dinosaurs and pterodons and things like that. Okay. But I was fortunate to be invited in on the very first class to take the advanced and then ultimately to take the master's. Life changes, as many people know, right. after that. But to your question about how did Portugal enter the whole thing, I actually had had the opportunity to travel in Portugal in the late 70s as part of an Iberian adventure with an ex-girlfriend uh, at the time and literally just fell in in love with the country, the people, the food, the wines, and um, have been just delighted that it's segued into my professional life since. So it's not a recent passion or love. It is. It's it something is. That hit your it early. is a decades-long love affair. All right. So that's who Evan is. Now I'm going to tap into Evan to tell us about Portuguese wines, and we're really going to focus on an area that Evan is doing a master class in today. Um, in the New York area. It's the wine region of Alentejo. So, Evan, let's talk about Alentejo, which is one of the wine regions Mm -hmm. of Portugal. And tell us about it. Let's cover things like location. Let's talk about climate. Let's talk about the terroir. Mm -hmm. Um, Importantly, grape varietals. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, we'll get into everything else. So, Alentejo is not the only wine region in Portugal. Where is it? How big? Yeah, no, it's a great question. It is one of many, and probably in the standpoint of uh, knowledge uh, from the public, one of the not so known. People know Porto. They know the Douro Valley. People know Vinho Verde because that's a very popular style of wine. The Alentejo actually sits in the interior of the country, more of a sort of classic um, continental area. It's relatively flat, a lot of rolling hills. Um, It covers approximately 40% of the Portuguese uh, southern area. It's in the southwest of the country and about a third of the country overall. Um, Within those areas, though, there are some hillsides actually in the northern part in a region called Porto Alegre. You have the second highest peaks in all of Portugal, which a lot of people don't know. And because of that, you get sort of, for lack of better words, mountain grape growing and and high, um, you know, high daytime, uh, nighttime differences of temperature styles. Uh, They focus in obviously being continental and it's a little bit warmer. Uh, Reds are their focus, about 80% of the wines, about 19.5% 
being white and the balance being in rosés. They have not figured out the rosé craze yet that the rest of us have. And they make um, delicious wines. What most people would probably be um, interested in knowing is that although outside of Portugal, not a lot of people know about it, it is the most important area within Portugal. It has 44% of the wines sold within Portugal at the certified level, which is to say PDO wines, VR right. wines, almost half of them are from Alentejo. Right. So there's, within Alentejo, there's eight designated wine regions, right? Exactly. Um, is there a region or a few regions where the majority of the wine is made, or does it really spread out equally? No, that's a great question. More is made in the northern area. Um, okay. so, so the northern area is not only where the lion's share is produced, but also where the lion's share of the quality is produced, and where seven of those eight PDOs lie within that, within that northern area. Um, within that, there's, for lack of better words, a sweet spot, which is sort of in the middle where three or four of them sit, uh, probably uh, Redondo, Reguengos, Evra being amongst the most prominent, but wines are produced throughout that whole northern segment. Now, Evra is a major center or city? Yeah, Evra would be to the Alentejo, let's say St. Helena would be to the Napa Valley, or Healdsburg would be to Sonoma County, and sort of right. being both a spiritual, culinary, and logistically important epicenter for the region. Now, when you look on a map, as you said, it takes up a good chunk of the southern part of the country. It runs coastal to inland. Yeah, and are I, there any wineries? Is the coastal area? You read my mind. Actually, most people don't even think about the fact that there is a fairly large swath in what they call the the southern part, which is more of where the regional wines come from, that actually touches the coast and which, which creates, for lack of a better word, sort of a wind tunnel that brings in cool water and keeps the south. Um, which doesn't seem like it would make sense counterintuitively. Cooler, more white wines come so from the south. Exactly. Which seems logical. Yeah, yeah. All right, so that's a good segue into climate. Um, there's a very interesting climate there, mm -hmm. which has a lot to do with what goes on, the type of grapes and all that. Talk to me about climate in the region. Yeah. So the lion's share of it would be this sort of, for lack of better words, continental climate, which is to say that they don't get a lot of rain. When they do get rain, it's in more traditional times of year. They don't have to worry about being you know, hailed on or, or stormed on during harvest like other parts of Western Europe do and other parts of Portugal do. So it's a more typically, you know, we would call it almost California-like right. uh, climate, but infinitely warmer. Uh, the winters can be quite cool. The summers can make uh, Las Vegas look chilly. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I've been in, in Evero when it's 112 degrees, and that's not particularly fun. It's good dry heat, uh, and water is a scarce issue. Uh, most places do not irrigate. They're dry farms. The wines have tremendous depth and intensity to them, which is then further... Um, uh, complexified, if that's a word, by an incredible range of soils that include granites and schists, marble soils and estramos up in Borba, uh, alluviums, etc. And it's some of the most complex tapestry of terroir that you're going to find in the country. So, and, and that that you taste in the different wines. Absolutely. In fact, it's it's very demonstrative. You know, one of the things we've learned over time is that there's certain types of soils that grapes love. Granite, whether you're in the Northern Rhone Valley or Beaujolais, is a type of soil that's very prominent in the Alentejo, and the grapes um, prosper because of that and do the wines. Schist, which is that same similar soil type to what you find in the Douro right. Valley, uh, is found also in Alentejo in both gray, blue, pink, and white uh, formats. There's also... Um, veins of limestone that permeate through the area. And then, like I said, there's this very unique outcropping of uh, marble in the Estremos area near Borba, which produces very distinctive wines of which people have uh, celebrated and written great articles about. So it's pretty diverse. Very much um, so. Let's talk about 
grape varietals. You said earlier on that the wines are predominantly red grapes. Mm -hmm. You just said the white grapes come from uh, the coastal regions. But let's start with the reds. Right. Let's talk about the predominant grapes. First, how many, you yeah. know, how diverse, <laughs> and then, you know, kind of drill it down to me where you're going to see most of it. Absolutely. Uh, Portugal, is, as many of your listeners probably know, is a treasure trove of uh, unique, distinct, and um, oftentimes mostly indigenous grapes. There's the highest density of indigenous grapes per square kilometer in Portugal than anywhere in Europe, and that overrides France, that overrides Spain, that overrides Italy. So layman's terms... Tons of indigenous grapes. In layman's terms, what does that mean? 200 plus different varietals? Two, over 250 varietals. And if you look at synonyms and stuff like that, you're probably pushing 350 to 400. And that rivals anywhere. That as rivals. Far as very much so, very much so. And again, a lot of this goes back down. You'll see similarities with Spain because a lot of people forget that there was not always a Spain and a Portugal. There was a bigger Iberia, and then they separated off um, decades and decades ago, as we know. Within the Alentejo, they celebrate this diversity of grapes. But to your point, there are, for lack of a better word, signature and predominant grapes in both the red and white categories. Within the reds, um, undeniably, the signature grape of the region is a grape called Alicante Boucher. And Alicante Boucher was developed in France post-Phylloxera when they we're trying to replant and figure out how do we cross volume with quality. And a number of grapes like Alicante Boucher, like Marcelon, like uh, Ejodala, et cetera, were planted with this idea being that those would be the, uh, the, the cat's meow and make things happen. Um, didn't do so well in France, but Alicante thrives in Portugal. The other two grapes that you're going to probably see most often would be Aragonés. Aragonés is also known as Tinto Roriz, but to your typical listener, probably most known as Tempranillo, which is what you find in Spain. And that's not only the most predominant grape within that region, Region, but within all of, of uh, Portugal. And then third, you have, you know, you have other grapes here and there, but probably grape like uh, Trincadera, which is known as Tinta Amarela up in the Douro, would rank a third. Then there's other grapes after that. So how much, how much blending is there? Like in Spain, you find a lot of Tempranillo only. I think the trend now everywhere is to uh, vint often unusual grapes, mm -hmm. and there's so many there. T tell me, you know, the majority of wines, are they one varietal? Are they mostly blended? Is there a sort of a surge in the newer or off varietals? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. I would say in Portugal in general, and certainly in the Alentejo in specific, blends rule. Um, they always okay. have done, they always will. Um, in that respect, you could say that they were ahead of the curve compared to where the global market is going in an embracing of, of blended styles of wine. You do occasionally more so in reds, ironically, than in whites, which is more typically the case around other parts of Portugal, you will see people um, make single varietal wines. But those are really more the exception than the rule, um, because more often than not, a lot of the older vineyards are planted as field blends. So they're not sitting there plotting out, this is where the Trincadero goes, this is where the Alicante goes. Portuguese in general, Alicante, um, uh, Alentejanos in specific, they're farmers. You plant a lot of stuff. You hope that they all ripen. Some do, some don't. The aggregate makes the wines more interesting, which is true in the Douro as well. So you're going to find wines that are that are driven um, as blends, oftentimes simply labeled as field blends. Other times they know right. kind of essentially what's inside. All right, so talk to me about whites. <gasps> mm -hmm. Before you tell me, has there been 
a growth in the percentage of white wines coming out, or it's sort of been stalled? Yeah, it's a great question. It's been it's been sort of slowly simmering and getting a little bit higher here and there, but they are pretty much you know kind of I don't want to say flat, but but in that range. Um, again, you have that same diversity of grape varieties there, but very much like the reds, there is a signature white for the region. It's a grape called Antau Weich, and that's funny to spell, but A N T A U. T-A-O, rather, V-A-Z. It's a grape that is unique to the Alentejo, and it does well because not only because it perform in really warm weather and maintain flavor and inter- interesting uh, um, diversity of stuff like that. It doesn't go sort of flat and flabby. It also blends really well with a number of other grapes. So while you can find predominant Anton Weish wines, they'll often be blended with two other grapes. One is Arintu. Arintu is the grape that we know of from Bucellus around Lisbon, and in the north is Pedena, where it's blended in the Douro and in Vino Verde. Here it's simply called Arintu, and it's known for its acidity, its minerality, which you need to bring into some of these blends that are otherwise sort of generous, rich, and creamy. And then the third grape that also does as well in warm weather would be Rupero, also known as Codiga del Arino, in uh, the northern Douro Valley, which does, again, maintain wonderful fruit flavors, but handle, handle its acidity while getting very warm. And on top of that, there's many dozens others. Dozens and like dozens. like you said, those yeah. are the... Uh, yeah. Um, good food wines, both of them? Excellent food wines. Um, I think one of the things that makes uh, Portuguese wine in general, and again, Alentejano wines in specific, so good is they are, you know, they call them quote-unquote gastronomic wines. You and I would say they're just darn good with food. Okay. And a lot of that is the structure, and a lot of that is the fact that that um, sort of counterintuitively, but more by style, two things have happened over time. One, the indigenous uh, grapes have indigenous unique flavors that are also, that tend to be very food-friendly, more savory, not fruit bombs etc. The blends uh, echo that. And then thirdly, because of uh, the way they are and finances, etc., the wines, I mean, there's exceptions to every rule, my friend, but the reality <laughs> is, is that they're not over-oaked. So, you know, where so many wines are unfood friendly because they're high in alcohol, low in acid, high in oak, and are wonderful by themselves, but not necessarily good with food, Portuguese wines in general, again, Alentejo in specific, um, move that way. Now, that's not to say the wines aren't generous. I mean, this is a warmer part of the world. Right. So, Wines can typically get up into there into the 14%, but they manage the acidity levels. They don't actually do a lot of um, acidulation. Um, they manage them very naturally. And if you get to the cooler areas like Porto Alegre in the far north, I mean, those acidity levels can be bracing. Really? Yeah. Interesting. So those are characteristics that define wines of mm-hmm. Alentejo. Anything else? I mean, we talked about food. We talked mm. about the acidity. We talked about how the reds. Yeah, yeah. I think the other thing that makes the Alentejo unique compared to, say, other regions of Portugal are twofold. Number one, estates are really large. You know, you go up anywhere else in Portugal, you hear this term quinta, Q-U-I-N-T-A, thrown around. Which means? Which is vineyard. And, it means they're, and they're generally smaller parcels. And the reason being that back in the days of uh, folklore and kingdoms and stuff like that, you had to pay quinta, a quinta, or, or basically um, a fifth, 20% of your harvest or money as taxes. People had smaller estates to manage that. In the Alentejo, they needed people. So to homestead people, they would give them herdages or heritages. So the estates there are much larger, general, oftentimes family-owned. But because of that, and because of the way things are planted, and it's incredible agricultural area, they're growing grapes, 
but they're also, there's cork trees. Most of the cork in Portugal comes from the Alentejo. There's olive oil. Some of the best olive oils of all of Portugal come from the Alentejo. The black hoof pato negro uh, pig that we all know of as being Spanish was actually from the Alentejo. Great cattle. Um, And then, of course, it's really the hotbed, heartland for cereal grains. So the best lands are held for and planted with cereal, followed by cattle grazing. And everything that was left over was for grapes, olives, and in some cases, goats. So that, that really points to an amazing agricultural region. Extraordinarily where wine diverse. fits in, you know, with all the other diversity. Yeah. Um, give me some context. We talk about the area, the climate, the grapes. Yeah. How many wineries are we talking about, and what kind of growth yeah. you know, has that changed it's, in the last five, ten years? No, that's, a, that's an excellent question. Back in 1995, there were less than 100 wineries. Okay. Uh, today, if you include virtual brands, it's closer to 400. Really? So it's been exponential growth. It's been rocket rocket growth um, as the interest in wine and, and the Alentejo, again, uh, being a, it's it's the domestic market is so important to it that people, there's been an incredible demand for those wines at, at the inexpensive end, but also even more so at the higher end. And they've been leaders in that regard. They've also been leaders, I think, in something we, we talked about off air, but I think it's worth bringing up, in sustainability. Right. You know, there, there's a program there which has a very unfortunate acronym called WASP, <laughs> Wines of Alentejo <laughs> Sustainability Program that has really been the leader uh, throughout the country in in demonstrating sustainability towards land, minimal fertilizers, um, goodwill towards the people who work for you, all those things that we take into holistically into what sustainability means. They've got over half the vineyards uh, and wineries um, at this point in literally three years signed up and uh, following that lead and, again, setting the trend for the rest of the country. Right, for the goal to be, you know, full compliance. And I'm sure people that are not there yet are you know, yeah. close to it. So it sounds like it's a model for uh, sustainability, organics, and all of that. Very much so. And, you know, people can go online and just t- type Alentejo Sustainability Wasp, and they've got an entire website that demonstrates um, the, the leadership that they are doing here. Now, you know a lot about wine besides Portuguese wines, too. I mean, are there other countries and regions um, that have a similar commitment mm-hmm. to sustainability? Y- yeah, I, I think, you know, sustainability, which used to be sort of, um, you know, and, and like I... The word I st- natural. Yeah, yeah. Too, yeah. too broad. Yeah, exactly. As, as we sort of define it and hone it and all of that, you definitely see pockets of the world that are leading. You know, in my own uh, backyard of Sonoma County, they have been huge leaders in the sustainability program for years and got almost every winery and, and vineyard signed on or, and are taking the lead in this country in that regard. Not to say Napa and other places aren't doing it too, but they're very much at the forefront. Chile, which people don't think about, has for decades been very much leaders in sustainability, not just in wines and grapes, but within increasingly other agriculture as well too, from people who didn't necessarily historically do that. And then Australia is doing a tremendous job with it as well too. New Zealand obviously have been leaders for a long time. I'm delighted, as I'm sure you are too, to see that this has become a global movement. There's an understanding of, for lack of better words, the custodial ship that we all have for the lands and leaving it for the people who follow us and not just sort of like taking advantage and, you know, uh, what do they call it, um, you know, prosperity by chemicals that we all right. used to live on before. Right. It's a good thing. Um, you and I are pretty close to the wine business, so we hear and see a lot. But when do you think people started paying attention or when did Alentejo wines sort of have their day and it's been good since then yeah. either with sommeliers yeah. or distribution mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. and I'm not sure it's anywhere you know there yet yeah, yeah. But, but 
I, when? No, that's a great question. I, I don't. I, you know, I don't think we've quote unquote scratched the the, the full potential of it. Portugal, in general, has had um, this sort of you know sad little redheaded stepchild of Spain mentality for a long period of time. Both internally, they're very self-critical um, as vintners and as winemakers and all of that. But two, just because you know they've literally been caught behind this. I mean, if you look at the map of Iberia here, here you have this Pac-Man called Spain chomping on this right. little cherry of, of Alentejo around there. But in the last, I would say, honestly, eight to ten years, and we're speaking here of table wines, not fortified wines, because obviously the history of Port and Madeira right. precedes the table wine movement. Different. But whether it's Dry Doro wines, Vino Verde, Alentejano wines, it's probably been an eight to ten slow similar, simmer moving up to a boil. Um, Vino Verde sort of led the way, cool, crisp, white, friendly, etc. Doro sort of got the next wave, and Alentejo is kind of very dramatically moving into third. People forget that places like Dao and Bairada, you know, in the north are, are tremendously historical places, but I think Alentejo is sort of moving into a, a position of strength based on the volume, based on the love of the Portuguese have for it, and people who are going more and more to Portugal, as I'm sure you've read too, right. um, are discovering those wines, and anywhere in Portugal that you go, you go to the, even in other wine regions, you order the house wine in another region, it could very well be Alentejo new wine simply because that's what people's tastes are. It's a very hot area and if you follow uh, sommeliers on Instagram in the last year, you know, more than a handful have been there and raving about it. So then let's say we sold some people on this. Uh You know, it sounds like a terrific area. People uh, who love wine are looking to experiment and always try other wines. How available are are the wines? Mm -hmm. Retail restaurant um, you know we have a big pocket of listeners in the northeast but the show is international yeah um, how available throughout the country? No, that's a, that's a, that's another terrific. Thanks for all these good questions, by the way. Um, I think that, like anything, Portuguese wines are quote unquote not as mainstream. Right, we know um, that. as all that. So you're going to need to go to either online retails where you can find anything these okay, days. Okay, so online, online wine.com, Vivino, all of those sites. You're going to be able to type answer. in wines that you find. Wine Searcher can send you the right way, etc. But in sort of standard traditional brick and mortar retail, going to places in Manhattan, um, certainly in Newark, there's a where we are today, there's a tremendous amount of Portuguese community and, and wines available. It's, it's going to be led by the more, um, the larger, I mean, la- and I say larger brands with hesitancy. They're making some great wines, but Esporao would probably be the most noteworthy. E-S-P-O-R-A-O. Yeah. They're probably the big dog of the region. Qualitative. But good quality? Excellent. Give Mon- me a couple other ones. Yeah. Um, and, and their wine, Montevelho, M-O-N-T-E-V-E-L-H-O, is the number one wine in Portugal, by the way, and a delicious value for the money. Um, Herdaji dos Mochas. Dados would be another one. Uh, the wines from uh, Herdaji de Rosim. Um, there's a number of, of different producers. But uh, if you go to places that specialize in them, they'll be able to do it or they'll be able a- to order any, it in for you. Any good brick-and-mortar place, if you express interest, they may have it. They can get it. Yeah. In your travels, when you go into restaurants and you go into casual to fine mm-hmm. dining, are you seeing more Portuguese wines on the list? Most definitely. Uh, I think that the, that, that the wave that we sort of alluded to before has definitely uh, hit shore in, in America's restaurants, whether they're at sort of the casual level, maybe not Olive Garden level, but casual right. level, all the way up to fine dining, uh, the number of offerings beyond the traditional. I mean, everybody's got ports, everybody's got a Madeira, most everybody has one or two token Vino Verdes, but now you're starting to see a lot of these interesting wines, not only from the Alentejo, but from places like Dao or Bairada. Right. There's an American sommelier love 
love affair with the baga grape right now right. that we're seeing pronounced in a lot of different places. You're definitely starting to see more traction, and a lot of it is due, um, as you said, to a love by the on-premise community. Uh, the fact that the Portuguese, both through um, Vini Portugal as well as the various CVR trade associations, are bringing more people over to discover firsthand. And there's a pull, because if you look at the numbers, whether it's the number of kayak searches about Portugal, the only right. non-Asian airport to have shown volume growth in in uh, in travelers two, a year and a half ago, I haven't seen the current statistics, of the top 10, the only one that wasn't in Asia was Lisbon. Wow. So people have really discovered Portugal, and they bring back and want to take back with them their love for their new discoveries of wine and food. Um, and finally, the other thing we didn't mention about, and I'm just thinking about it now, but if you're interested in really good food, the best Portuguese food, in my humble opinion, I'm sure I'll get beaten by some of my colleagues, is in the Alentejo. They have the best raw ingredients. They have wonderful, uh, it's not uber molecular, crazy right. cuisine, tweezer food, right. and all that. But if you want food that tastes like food, breads that taste like breads, and they have amongst the greatest diversity, this is a spot for you. It's the old you. farm to table thing, but that's what it really is. It, truly, it's such an agricultural arena. Um, all right, so sounds to me like Alentejo to you rivals any uh, wine region. Oh, very much so. I, 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 you know, I've always had a uh, an emotional connection in it. When I talked to you about going into Portugal in the 70s, the only region I visited at the time outside of right. the Lisbon area was I took that 90-minute train and went to Evora. I think your girlfriend made you go there, but <laughs> that was fortunate. All right, listen, we're going to wrap up, but before we wrap up, I do a thing called the wine list where I ask my guests their wine preferences, and you could focus it towards Portuguese or anything else. Mm-hmm. If there's a Portuguese answer that trumps anything else. Um, answer it that way. Um, and then before we finish up, I just want you to give me some info, websites, yeah. or anywhere where people can get more information. Sure. All right, so we're going to subject Evan to the wine list. <laughs> First question is, what are you drinking now? What are you tasting? What's seasonal? What's on your table? What are you interested yeah, in? Yeah, I, I, I always tell people, and I, I hate to say I take the fifth on this, and I'm very much of an equal opportunity drinker. So it really depends on what I'm focusing on. Obviously, this week I've been drinking a lot of great Portuguese and Alentejano right. wines, which I'm reminded of my love for them when I'm coming out and teaching on the road. But I just got back from an uh, extraordinary two-week trip to Australia where I was doing some prep for some programs I'm doing in the fall and was enamored by the Grenaches coming out of the McLaren Vale and the Blue at Springs area in particular, some of the Rieslings coming from the Macedon, um, a renewed love affair with the old vine Semillons coming out of the Hunter, etc. But I've been also tasting, you know, a bunch of other things. I've got another big South American program coming up, and I was tasting through some fabulous wines, some Chile coming from the Elqui area, and Limari, and Chihuahua, and all those great places that I that I love. I'm a sucker for the Secano interior of Bio Bio and Itata. I love my Argentinian uh, Malbecs, as everybody knows. Um, right. And I've been, I've been sort of rediscovering my own backyard. You know, familiarity breeds contempt, but I've had a, a, a tremendous amount of really good, cool California. coastal California, specifically Sonoma, West Sonoma Coast wines recently that have re-engaged give, me on, on... Give me one or two, oh, Sonoma. Yeah, um, I'm, I I was just dining recently with David Ramey up at Ramey Wine Cellars, who's uh, a, a legend. A legend, there. and uh, we actually did a dinner together, uh, him and a number of other producers, where we did sort of a 10 years after revisit of the 87, uh, the 97 vintage, rather, and um, we had some of his older Chardonnay's, his old Ritchie Vineyard that was uh, mind-bogglingly fabulous, but even some other you know, some other great wines. What have I had recently? Some old Dutton Goldfields. Dan was at that dinner. Um, I'm just reminded of not only their quality, but their ability to age. Yeah, and they've been around. All right. 
quicker answers. Give me your favorite. Do you have a favorite wine and food pairing? Do you have something that I, there's a lot of great wine and food pairings, yeah. but is there something that just sticks I, with you? Yeah, there's there's a, there's a number of them. You know, actually, two things. Number one, I'll be shamelessly if my publisher would beat me if I didn't say <laughs> I wrote two books on the subject: perfect pairings and daring pairings right. with the University of California, and people can find more than they want to know about philosophically what I do. Um, I wrote a great. I'm, I'm actually going to tease you guys a little bit, and I wrote a wonderful article on my top ten food and wine pairings of the unexpected nature for a uh, website called Tablehopper.com. I would Google it; it will surprise you. Some of them were very modest, whether they were a stormy day in the Barossa Valley where we were supposed to be out drinking big reds, and we ended up drinking cool climate Rieslings with uh, you know the Germanic charcuterie that hits the region, or you know a, a, a trip to Champagne that was unexpected with some good things. But I don't have one particular. I'm, okay. I'm, I'm really open-minded. But people can go and uh, look yeah, at find that, that article. It's a great article, by the way. I right, give me you. You should be able to answer this, and it could be any geographic area. Give me one or two favorite wine restaurants and or bars. These are places you walk into where the selection, attention, the staff yeah. towards the wine and the food or sometimes just the wine bar. Give Absolutely. me one or two places. Yeah. I'll, I'll give you... Without I'll, incriminating anyone. No, no, no. I, I was going to say there's a couple of spots that I would recommend. I'll try and... I'll, I'll give you three wine bars. How's that? And I'll give you a couple of restaurants who 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 have always loved what they do. Um, in my own San Francisco, um, my new neighborhood haunt um, is a tremendous effort. It's called High Treason, and it's located in the inner Richmond. It's two former uh, three-star sommeliers who decided to slum it and open a wine wow. bar, hence High Treason. But they're doing a great job, very curated uh, narrative of wines that rotates on a regular basis. Uh, bar Covell down in L.A., I think uh, Matt uh, Kaner is doing an extraordinary Spell job. Covell. Uh, C-O-V-E-L-L. Oh, and okay. he has another Park sister Covell. restaurant called Augustine that does a really, okay. really good job. Um, those would be two probably that I that, that, that are top of mind right now. Is there a Max, there's another one in D.C., Maxwell's, Maxwell's. Uh, which is a, a new effort by uh, Brent Kroll that is uh, really cool, really dynamic, fun, uh, energetic, uh, very millennially hip and all that good stuff too, but but not so um, hip that it scares people, like old farts like me, away from uh, going there. You're not that old. Is there <laughs> any uh, restaurant that that kind of rises to the top. Yeah, you know, I was just thinking in my own, you know, just being here in the in this area in Alaska Wells, I'm still to the day and they've been going around going strong for decades, always enamored with the wine program at Union Square Cafe in Manhattan. I think it's perennial. I think from the early days on through Jason and, and Arthur today, yep. um, it's been a, a, a supreme program. Um, in my own area of San Francisco, gosh, who's been doing a really good job? I think what Francesca's doing at Commonwealth these days uh, is a really interesting effort. I think uh, the team that does both the wine lists at uh, Cotonia and at Quince uh, down right. in the, they're doing a really Great good job. Places. And then lastly, you know, she, my big, if, you know, my for my, my Southern Italian and shout out, you know, Shelly Lindgren at A16 and SPQR continues to Great rock and places. roll. All right, you gave us a lot of those. <laughs> Do you have, it could be one, if you can't get it to one, one or two. Do you have a favorite all-time wine? And that doesn't mean Ooh. the most expensive yeah, or the yeah, hardest to get. Yeah. Sometimes it's experiential, situational. Yeah. Does anything? I'll, I'll give you a couple. You can pass. You, yeah, no, I'll, I'll give you two 
but they're mo- they're more emotional probably than they are. That's that. Um, the first one would be the uh, the old vines um, uh, Moulin Avant made by Paul Janin in Beaujolais, and the reason for Spell that J A N I N Paul okay. Janin in Paul Beaujolais, Jeanin. and uh, the reason was that the uh, when back in the days in the uh, I want to say like 1990 uh, when my uh, my wife my current my, my current wife that's always an awkward one we've been married <laughs> for you know almost 30 years now came into the restaurant that's the wine that I recommended to her and we've celebrated with it pretty much every year since then right around our anniversary that's a special wine so that's a very special wine to me and then um, I know it's going to sound sort of like cliche and over the top but I was at an event once and I happened to be born in 1961 uh, which is a wonderful year but a year I can no longer afford <laughs> and wow, uh, right. yeah I know those wines have gotten Crazy. pricey but somebody Bordeaux. pulled out a bottle of 61 Krug champagne um, which was stunning jaw dropping um, and I took the empty bottle home which I usually don't do and put it on my plate shelf well, in my dining room it's a keepsake for that sure that was a great one those are good choices we ask our guests uh, this last question and I don't want you to get too heavily into it uh-huh. but what you're doing and where we're at right now kind of plays into it I ask everyone, best wine around 15, 20 bucks, a red and a white, because my kids are in their 20s and they want to go to a dinner party. They don't want to, they can't spend too much. They don't want to bring a crappy wine. I really think the answer, let's stay within Portugal. Yeah, here, let me pull out my roster of what I've got today. You could find Portuguese wines in that range. Very much so. Um, One of the wines that we talked about a little bit earlier, this great line of wines from Esporão, his wines tend to be in sort of like the 10 to 25-ish range. Perfect. And then he makes this very inexpensive wine called, called Monte Velho, which is available forever. And for less than $10, it's a mind stopper, uh, both red and the white wine. Uh, a couple of other wines here. We're showing a wonderful little rosé today. Rosés are hot. Okay. Uh, this one's made by a producer called Ribera Fresho. It's called Pato Frio. It's $11. And in this day and age where all the rosé prices, especially from Provence, are hitting astronomic Crazy. prices um, and the weather's warming up, that's, uh, that's another great place to go. Those are uh, good recommendations. All right, last thing. If people want to get more information on Portuguese wines and you, uh, where do they go? Let's start with Portuguese yeah. wines. Portuguese wines in general, Wines of Portugal has a great website, lots of information. How about Alentejo? Uh, wines of Alentejo or okay. Alentejo wines. So Google the, it or Google dot it, they'll com find that, that stuff. Uh, about us, um, you can go to fullcirclewinesolutions.com. That's that'll your take company. us to our. So and Full Circle Wine Consulting, that's Evan's. Uh, full Circle Wine Solutions. Full or, Circle Wine Solutions. Yeah, um, this is the easier one to do, and then they'll find lots of links to stuff that I've done. Okay. That's good. Good info. Um, Evan Goldstein, MS, I want to thank you for sitting down with us and enlightening us about the Alentejo region of Portugal. Thank Thank you. you. The pleasure was mine. Thank you. Thanks. If you have a question, suggestion, wine happening, or event, hit me up at samatthegrapenation.com. Follow us on Facebook at The Grape Nation. Follow us on Instagram at sbenruby and the hashtag thegrapenation. On Twitter, we're at benruby. Also subscribe to the Grape Nation podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. Thank you to our guests, Paolo Russell Pinto and Master Sommelier Evan Goldstein. Thank you to our engineers, Matt Nome, and everyone at the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sam Benruby, and you've been listening to the Grape Nation. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. 
Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.